I'm Ray Bolins, my wife Sue, and uh, we are with Probe Ministries. I currently serve as president of Probe. And what we're sharing with you today really has become the focus of our entire ministry. Addressing this, this issue, this problem, it's something we've been aware of for several years, and we've just sharpened our focus. Often, if you're a regular attender here, you've heard Todd frequently uh, criticize the church in America today. And what we're going to be talking about today, in our view, is the primary reason the church is sick. And uh, we're working on a program to address it. Um, but the, we're going to be giving you basically the, the uh, background information. We've done some. We've done some of our own. We've done our own survey. We have analyzed lots of other surveys uh, to get at the bottom line of the information we're going to be sharing with you. Um, so that's just to tell you that what we're talking about today is is close to our hearts. This is this is significant to us and very important. Um, we're titling this, Are You Culturally Captive and Don't Know It? Because it's kind of a, I don't know, a little a bit of an insidious process. Uh, the culture is a powerful force on all of us today, especially the more you engage with different forms of media. <laughs> uh, things are communicated through the media today where there's almost no filters anymore. And everything is accessible in a way it's never, it never has before. Uh, the this, this simple example is pornography. It's it's everywhere. It, it's it's not hard to find. Good, good morning. Um, essentially, this is revolving around um, Colossians two, eight and nine. Paul warns us specifically to see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. That's according to men. That's according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. Um, our basic conclusion is that we haven't done this. <laughs> to Paul, it, it was a command. It's right after he's saying, you know, you, you've been rooted and built up in faith and grow, get stronger. Um, and, um, and then he offers this very sincere and pointed warning. It's a command. Don't be taken captive in your mind. Don't allow the culture, the things that are according to the world, according to men, to so soak in, soak in your head that you're no longer you, you don't you don't see it, you don't recognize it. Our understanding currently is that most of those who are severely culturally captive in our culture today, in our churches, don't know it. They really don't know it. Just a couple of. Examples here, the divorce rate in the church is similar to those who are not in the church. In some ways of looking at it, since our divorce rate is just a little bit higher sometimes, depending upon who's doing the study and what, what year it was done. I mentioned pornography earlier. Some estimate that as many as 70%, at least of the men in our churches, are struggling with pornography. And there's a growing percentage of women who are struggling with pornography in the church. Our own survey demonstrated that. Uh, women, as many as 10, 15, 20% are struggling with pornography. And <laughs> the really high indicator of cultural captivity is that we also asked in those questions, um, 
essentially, how do you feel about this? Is there guilt? Is there? Are you struggling with it, or is it just okay? Well, there's a pretty good percentage of them who are saying, "Ah, oh, it's not. It's not a big deal. It's not a problem. This is what I do. Yeah, I kind of struggle with, it, but you know, it's okay." The vast majority of our high school students, as we put it, graduate from God once they walk from walk once they walk the stage. Um, one study by uh, Lifeway um, back in 2007 found that 70% of graduating high school seniors who are involved in a church, in a youth group, will take at least a year off from their faith, from, from church in college. And for most, it's far more than that. And while some do return, by age 30, at least a third of them still have not come back. And they likely won't. Um, so there's something pervasively wrong, and we're just going to um, go a little bit deeper with it today. We define cultural captivity as simply relying on the culture rather than Christ for truth. We, we get truth claims all around us today, and the most insidious one is that true can met, is, is personal. Truth is personal. Uh, what's true for you is not true for me. Um, you're a Buddhist. Gee, that's great. I'm glad you found something that's meaningful for you and more power to you. Uh, and sometimes you tell somebody you're a Christian, you'll get that back. Oh, that's great. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you've got a faith and that's important to you. You're living it. But the message is stay away. <laughs> don't, don't try to tell me what you believe is absolutely true. And if it's opposite to what you believe, that's not true. Uh, our young people, our high school graduates and so forth, uh, are really captivated by this. For the most part, uh, they are unwilling to witness to somebody because that is essentially being intolerant. If you witness to somebody in the sense of saying, I have the truth, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life for all people, um, and you share it that way, and you talk about it that way, you're being intolerant in the culture today. So conform to the culture rather than God's revealed will. That's how we define cultural captivity. Any questions on that? Does that make sense? Okay. I'm going to let uh, Sue take it from here, and she's going to be asking questions. Thank you. So, question is, are you culturally captive? And this is where um, I start stomping on toes, so you may as well take your shoes off, um, because we've been paying attention for the last several years to what cultural captivity in the church looks like. And we've been accumulating, thank you, accumulating um, some ideas about the difference between someone who is culturally captive and what the Word of God says. So let's just take a look at some of the ways in which Christians um, in, in the church are culturally captive. If you believe that your faith is private and it shouldn't impact other areas of life like work and relationships and family, leisure time, because my faith is what I do for one hour on Sunday morning and then it has nothing to do with the rest of my life, that is cultural captivity because Philippians 2.11 says Jesus Christ is Lord. That means he's Lord over every part of our lives, or at least he should be. 
If you believe that having more money or a bigger house or a nicer car or a college degree will make you happy, which is one of the basic uh, descriptions of materialism, that makes us culturally captive. Psalm 84.11 says, No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Which means that if God hasn't given us some of the stuff that we think will give us life and make us happy, then it must not be either a good thing or a good thing for us or a good time for that good thing. So we need to be trusting in him instead of believing that stuff will make us happy. A lot of cultural captivity shows up in our views of children and how people parent. When parents believe that their job is to make their children happy, when parents believe that their job is to keep their children happy, um, or even more, if, if parents can't stand it when their kids are mad at them, especially if they're feeling guilty, they have to placate, make sure that the kids are happy so that I'm okay with me. That's a form of cultural captivity because what God says is that children belong to him. They, children are a gift from God to parents. They belong to, children, uh, to, to God. And parents are given stewardship of children, um, which means that they don't belong to us. They belong to God, and we need to be very careful about how we handle the messages that they get. Another form of cultural captivity is when we consume entertainment mindlessly, the way we eat popcorn during a movie. I don't know about you, but if I get a thing of popcorn at the movie, I have no memory of eating any of it. By the t- all of a sudden, it's gone. And that's because I was mindlessly consuming it. And there's a lot of us who consume TV, um, Internet, anything on the internet we could spend hours in front of YouTube um, videos all kinds of entertainment with no filter in place without thinking at all what should I be thinking about this would Jesus be comfortable if he was sitting right here next to me watching this and listening to this music or this movie The question that I suggest that we need to be asking in order to be not culturally captive is, okay, this thing that I'm, that I'm engaged with right now, how does it compare to what God says in his word? So we need to, first of, all, first of all, we need to be aware of what God's word says in order to compare it. Believing that cheating is a legitimate way to win because the only thing that matters is winning that's a sign of cultural captivity. Ray and I were commenting about that. We've seen a couple of billboards for a law firm that say basically winning isn't the only, you know, is the only thing. That's the only reason you do anything is to win. And therefore, it doesn't matter what methods you use to make sure you win. Would Jesus sign on to that? Well, in Matthew 19:18. The Lord said, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, both of which are involved in cheating. I don't think Jesus ever cheated. I know for a fact that Jesus never cheated. But so often, culturally captive Christians can justify cheating because we've bought into the idea that winning is everything. You may be culturally captive if you dismiss Satan and the demons as imaginary beings like the Easter Bunny and the Tooth Fairy, saying, 
come on, that is so archaic. That is so old-fashioned. That is so primitive. Nobody believes in that anymore. That's a mark of cultural captivity. When we go to the Word of God, we see that in Matthew 4, Jesus, immediately after his baptism, was propelled into the desert to be tempted by Satan. He deliberately put himself in a face-to-face challenge with Satan, who is very real. Years ago, we heard a a pastor say in one of his sermons, I believe something because Jesus believed it. And one of his points was, I believe Satan is a real being because Jesus believed Satan was a real being. That, that works for us. Believing God wants you to be happy, so you dump spouse number one to hook up with spouse number two. There's a lot of that, unfortunately, in the church. And this is an element of cultural captivity. Because God says what he feels about that kind of behavior in Malachi 2, 15 and 16. So guard your heart. Remain loyal to the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. So the idea of trading in spouse number one to get a better model as spouse number two and thinking it's okay I can do that that I, I have that right is being culturally captive if your favorite team won when you wore their jersey and now you have to keep wearing that jersey every time they play so that they will continue to win that is an element of cultural captivity it's a form of superstition which is the opposite of trust in God, trusting in one's own magic powers to create reality or to make reality do what you want it to do. It's amazing how many people can fall into the superstition um, trap. And along those lines, if you check your horoscope every morning, even though you say it's just for fun, that is an aspect of cultural captivity because the Word of God says... In Deuteronomy 18.10, there shall not be found among you anyone who practices divination, which is um, trying to tell the future, or tells fortunes, or interprets omens. Deuteronomy 18 has God's no-no list in it, and horoscopes, astrology, falls under that category because if we're looking to astrology rather than to God to give us direction on how to live, then we are placing the stars and astrology above him. And the Lord said, Thou shalt not have any gods before me. You have a lot of issues with this one. Having sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend, because that's just part of dating. Everybody knows, you know, you go out to dinner, you go to a movie, you have sex. It's just, that's the way dating is done. Or... Going behind that to your beliefs about sex, believing that no one can live without sex, it's a basic need like air and food and water. Actually, in Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, which is taught in Psychology 101, he put sex in the same category as these basics. You need food to live. You need air to live. You need um, excretion to live. You need sex to live. That is a lie. Because there literally have been billions of people since Adam and Eve were created who lived an entire life without sex, and that would be including the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It is not true that you need sex to live. One time I was doing a conference for um, people who were sexually and relationally broken, and I brought this up as a lie that so many people believe. And this guy looked at me as if I had slapped him, and he said, You're telling me I can live without sex? And I said, Yes. And he said, I have never heard that in my entire life. First time ever. So we we had to talk about that some more. (laughs) Believing that you can find life in things other than God himself, anything other than God himself, is a mark of cultural captivity. The Lord Jesus said in John 10.10, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. We find life in God himself, not in the creation. There are some people who will say things like, well, you know, Jesus works for me, but other people have their own ways to God, and I don't want to be a narrow-minded bigot. So who am I to say that the Hindu isn't entitled to his belief and he's not right, or the atheist, or the Buddhist, or um, the guy in Haiti who is all engaged in voodoo and black magic? But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's not a matter of Jesus works for me. That's kind of putting Jesus in the same category. We need to put Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life in the same category as gravity. We would never say, well, you know, gravity works for me, but it might not work for you. So go ahead to the top of the watermark tower and step off. And because, you know, if gravity doesn't work for you, then you'll float down. Some things are true whether we believe in them or not. And this, the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord and he's the only way to the Father is one of those things. Finally, um, one of the most amazing things I ever heard, I got a phone call from a youth pastor once who said that in his youth group, this is high school kids, they were talking about um, God's views of sexual morality. And he said... God's perspective is that we are to hold our bodies in holiness and purity until we get married, at which point then um, we hold our bodies in purity and um, um, monogamous faithfulness to our spouse. God says that is the only way that, that our bodies should be used sexually. And this girl raised her hand and she said, but that's just God's opinion, isn't it? And he was stunned because in her thinking, God's entitled to his opinion and I'm entitled to my opinion. And why should there be any difference in, you know, everybody's entitled to their own opinion. Problem is, God's opinion is what is reality. <laughs> and so... God doesn't have opinions. <laughs> yeah, God doesn't have opinions, yeah. Isaiah 45.5 it says, I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. If we have an opinion that's different than God, Him being God means our opinion's wrong. <laughs> it's not just that we're entitled to our own thoughts. It means we have a problem. Okay, the rest of this section, um, I'm going to turn it over to Ray so he can talk further abort about cultural captivity. Well, I mentioned earlier about uh, surveys and and such, and that's what I'm going to be reviewing with you here. Um, I'm I'm just going to warn you, you, there's no good news here. (laughs) 
There's no good news here, and, and some of it may indeed even be shocking to you. Um, uh, but this is, as I said earlier, I think the really root cause of why the church is drifting as much as it is. And there's that LifeWhite survey that I mentioned earlier, 70% of 18 to 22-year-olds will take a break from church when they leave home. Um, you know, and even those who come back, uh, they come back with scars. They come back with they come back broken. Um, many of them only come back when they're married and they're starting to have children, and they remember their early church education. They want their kids to have that too. When you start asking them why, why did you leave? Uh, it, it it didn't take much. <laughs> Uh, I was too busy, uh, too far away from church. Uh, there, there's all excuses. <laughs> um, and when those who come back, it's not because it's true. There are, again, kind of positive excuses as to why I would, why we came back. So um, even those that return are not coming back in really good shape. Souls in Transition by Christian Smith came out in 2008. This was a five-year study beginning with a, a, a cohort of over 13 to 18-year-olds and continued to survey them for five years until they were 18 to 23. Okay? Now, his, one of his overall summaries of how he sees this as he puts them uh, emerging adults, he said, emerging adults felt entirely comfortable describing various religious beliefs that they affirmed, but that appeared to have no connection whatsoever to the living of their lives. That's cultural captivity. That's saying, I have ideas in my head that come from Scripture, but I don't live it. It doesn't affect how I live day to day. Uh, new book just, just out, by Maximum Faith by George Barna, the one who does a lot of these surveys. And again, he's, he's summing, summing up here the condition of the church where it says, we are stymied by unbiblical theology that distorts our understanding of God, life, how the world works, and the role of faith and spirituality in our decision-making. That was one of the other things in our survey. We, we probed a little bit about what, what affects your decisions. How, how do you go about making decisions? Does, does, Bible truth, does biblical truth play any role? And it was a small minority who actually said biblical truth makes a difference in how they make their decisions. Now, this is a little bit startling. Uh, this is from uh, a government-sponsored survey that goes on every year, GSS, I won't, and uh, the NSYR is a Christian Smith's study. Um, uh, since 1972, the number of here the, the non-Christians for 20 years basically remained the same. Liberal Christians basically remained the same, but something happened in 1990 and those numbers are both climbing. And by 2008, it was 6 to 5% of our adult population would be classified in, that, in those categories. Now, look at those, those trends and just imagine if that trend continues. If you estimate it, if, again, you're just speculating here, but by 2030, 95% of the American population, adult population, would be fitting in these two categories. Um, right. Yeah. What constitutes a religious liberal? Ba- basically, someone who's uh, clearly attending a a mainline denomination 
and um, is answering certain questions in a way that says, yeah, Jesus is fine. So the GSS is actually making that classification. So if you classify yourself as an evangelical, you wouldn't be put in that, in that category. So we, we wanted to ask, what do these individuals believe? Where are they? Basically, um, we've been describing this for decades now, that ideas and beliefs, it's, it's like going through a cafeteria line. You, you look at what you like, and you, you pick off things that look good at the moment, and uh, you kind of accumulate things on your tray, but you're, but you're not really thinking about, do they coordinate, are they consistent, is, is there a... a, a thread here that ties everything together. Oh, I kind of like this, I like that. You know, it's kind of like walking through and no, well, you can get chocolate ice cream and you can get blue cheese dressing in the cafeteria line. And you like both of those just because you like them. But you're not going to put the blue cheese dressing on the ice cream. But that's what that's what we're doing in our heads. We are accumulating things that, that seem to be right at the moment, that feel right. Uh, Christian Smith has just come out with a second book called Lost in Transition. And here, they, they not only surveyed these 3,000 uh, young adults for five years, but they also conducted, with a smaller number, intensive interviews with them. And in this new book, he's documenting how those interviews went and what these people are thinking. And the most startling conclusion that comes out of that, and it's been showing up in newspapers here recently, uh, columns and so forth, is that in moral and ethical thinking, they predominantly make their decisions by how they feel. They don't have any kind of foundation or structure that gives a, a grid to see things through. It's how I feel at the moment. And uh, there's a lot of people, not just Christians, who are looking at that and saying, oh my gosh, these people don't know how to make a moral or ethical decision. Some of them would say, I, don't, I, don't, I never come across a moral decision. I don't have those. <laughs> um, so, it's kind of like they're all eating Dagwood sandwiches, you know, and just pile whatever looks good at the moment and we're combining it all together and it's it just a little scary. Now, this also is from Christian uh, uh, Smith's Souls in Transition. Out of the, they started out with three thousand, and they ended up with about twenty five hundred uh, that they were that were still part of the survey. They still could locate through those five years. That's, that's a very very significant number of individuals to do this kind of survey. Very exhaustive. Um, and what we did is we looked at, at all of their. He had four categories: religious beliefs, religious practices, cultural beliefs, and cultural practices. And so we looked at all those questions, and we combined what we would identify as a biblical worldview and how you live your life. Okay. And so we were combining uh, more than a dozen questions and answers to those. Now, for each one of those course questions, you could come up with, you know, say 30 40% are believing the right thing or acting in the right way. But when you start, well, how many do both of these? How many do all three? How many believe all four? How many practice all ten are fitting in uh, in a biblical context? Well, one out of 25, 50. 
one. I understand we have a lot of them here at Watermark, um, but when you spread out beyond our confines, it's not very prevalent. We really want to believe that not only should all these religions and ways of, of thinking should, should coexist with each other, but they all have the right to claim we're true and now we're almost all expecting don't tell me I don't have the truth. That's, that's really where you get into trouble today and that's why as evangelicals in our culture t- today we are quite willing to say this is wrong. Well, that's extremely intolerant today and, and we get labeled as hate-filled and all the other names that they put to that because we're willing to say this is wrong, this is right for everybody. We're going to get more and more isolated in that way. Those who choose to continue uh, thinking that way in a biblical context, but you can see the pressure the culture is putting on all of us to not do that. Who wants to be called a hate-filled, you know, racist or uh, homophobic or whatever the names might be? Um, nobody likes to be called that, uh, especially when you're young. And your, your, your mind is still forming. Your beliefs are still forming. Uh, you're trying to get a feel for who you are. And those pressures when you're young, it's, it's devastating. You want to fit in. You want to be a part. You, who, who wants to be isolated over here? So. so, again, cultural captivity, relying on the culture rather than Christ for truth. Now what I'm going to review for you is there are some of the results from our survey that we contracted with the Barner Group to do for us. Now this is a study of 18 to 40 year old born again adults. Now how do we determine they were born again? This was an online survey and uh, <clears throat> the first two questions were do you have an ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ that's still important to you today and do you know you're going to heaven because your sins are forgiven and you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you answer yes to both those questions, then we classify you as born again, and you can take the rest of the survey. You miss one of those questions, and you're kicked out. Okay? About as good as you can get, I think, in a survey context to get people to... We don't ask them, are you born again? That's that's not the way to do it. So that's who these individuals are. Also, our survey uh, composed 817. And that was the largest number a Barner recommended for us so we could actually subdivide the study sum and, and still have statistically significant results. Okay. There are approximately 97 million 18 to 40-year-old adults in America. That's a lot of you. <laughs> About 35% of that would be classified as born again. This is from other Barner studies that they have done. We'll get to what a biblical worldview is, a basic biblical worldview, only about a third of those 33 million actually have a biblical worldview, and it's a set of six basic beliefs. When you add in some additional beliefs, that number drops in half again. Uh, So now we're down to, um, of born-again adults, we're down to about 15, 16%. When you ask how many, we asked our our, uh, survey do you wit- witness to someone in a typical month? Typical month. It was six out of 817. Don't, don't want to commit that cultural sin of claiming I have truth. Uh, 
Now, what are these six biblical beliefs? First of all, do you believe that there is an all-powerful creator God who, still, who is still in control today? So, your name and who you think God is. Okay. The second one concerns Jesus, and they're asked, did Jesus live a sinless life? This is an attempt to get some idea of their either ideas about Jesus' uh, deity. Can you earn your way to heaven? So, is it faith or is it works? Do you believe there are such things as absolute moral truths? So, absolute moral truths. Is Satan a real being, not just an idea or a figment of our imagination? And lastly, what about the Bible? Is the Bible accurate in all that it proclaims? If you answer yes to all those to those six questions, and you'll, I think you'll see those are fairly foundational and, and minimal ideas, then we would classify Barna classifies them as having a biblical worldview. Now, in our survey, two thirds did not have a biblical worldview. They got at least one of those six questions wrong. Now, what I'm going to look at here is how this group the ones who got one of those questions wrong, how did they fare on all six questions? Pretty good on the God question. All-powerful creator, 94% would agree to that. You really are concerned about the 6% who don't. But yet they say they're born again. <laughs> they, they answered, I, I, you don't know what to do that. Only two-thirds would say Jesus lived a sinless life. Now, the third that say he... he Jesus sinned, and you've trusted him as your Savior. Well, what kind of Savior is he? How, how can he save you from anything if he sinned just like you did? So, who is this Jesus that these people are following and, and relating to? Only half said absolute moral truths exist. So, the other half are saying truth is relative. So, when Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father but, but through me, yeah, they're pretty wishy-washy on that. That's one of those things where it's true for me, but it might not be true for you. Again, only half would agree that the Bible is totally accurate. If you don't think the Bible is totally accurate, then it loses its pull. It loses its value. And why bother reading it if you can't judge for yourself what you're reading is true or whether this is one of the parts that's false? You may just limit yourself to a few inspirational passages, and that's as far as it goes. Um, even more startling, only a third believes Satan's real. There's no enemy out there. Uh, that, again, further isolates you in a, in a way that says, well, I really can. It, the only battle that's going on is in me. And... I don't like battles anyway, so I just won't fight those battles. <laughs> I'll just go how I feel. There's no real enemy out there. And it's the same thing with uh, faith. <laughs> Salvation. Salvation, Many, two-thirds of them think you can earn your way. To have, yes, ma'am? Did y'all look at denominations? Um, we didn't break it down that way. We did. Uh, uh, we, we can, because we did at the end. We asked for affiliations, where you go to church, and that sort of thing. But we haven't broken it, broke it down that way. This is what we call the long con. And all of this is a part of it. 
that the culture, Satan, through the culture, has been conning Christians and believers for decades now. And it's only, we've been watching it for a while. We've been, what we haven't had the uh, ability to really nail it down as we are now. It's really, really bad, the situation we're living in. We also asked uh, our, those taking the survey, who was the most influential person in uh, your spiritual formation? 53% said it was a parent. 11% said a grandparent. So the most influential institution, 64%, is family. Um, when you ask about a pastor or you ask about the youth group, it just doesn't measure up. Many of our parents have entrusted the spiritual education of their kids to the church. When the reality is, the kids are watching mom and dad. They're watching, they're listening, they're paying attention to what you do, how you talk, uh, how, how you make decisions, and that's where the influence really comes from. And part of our message here is to these 18 to 40 year old adults who are the parents of the next generation look this is this is what you admitted to you to yourself this is the most influential institution the family how are you raising your kids if your faith is even remotely important to you but yours is already watered down what gets transferred to the kids is going to be even more watered down because you're not intentional about it in any way um, one other part of this is when those who said a parent, we asked which parent. Only 16% said it was dad. Only 16%. Yeah, could be. That's another important aspect to that. You bet. Is this for spiritual Yes. Yeah. Oh, by the way, um, only 1% said grandfather. Ten percent was grandmother. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Many of us were raised in it ourselves <laughs> already. And again, that's why this uh, result is what we hope will be a window into the lives of some of these young parents. Uh, look, you're the most influential person. And you've got to make some decisions here and be a bit more intentional about it. And first examine what you believe and what is it you're really trying to convey to your children. Now, we asked questions about spiritual engagement. Now, I said we had 817, so we had 286 that had a biblical worldview, answered all six questions correctly, and we had 531 that at least got one question wrong. And by the way, that was a small minority. Most got two, three, four questions wrong. Okay. So that's just the number, 286, that have a biblical worldview. Now we asked, do you pray in a typical month? It's about 94%. A fairly good number for these folks. Do you attend church? Well, over 80% are attending church at least twice a month. Do you study the Bible? Well, that was a little under 80%. Pretty good. Do you attend a small group? Well, it was just over 50%. Though, what we're trying to show you here is that uh, how you answer those six questions is a real indicator in how you're living the rest of your Christian life. So when we asked who did, how, many, how many did all four of these, 
oh, it was about 40 or so percent, 45 percent. Now, it's a little discouraging, the numbers who do have a biblical worldview and still aren't going to church, and they still don't pray, and they don't read their Bible. Uh, that, that's a little disturbing. Now let's look at the without a biblical worldview. This is, this is uh, twice the number of individuals. So how many pray? Well, that was still pretty good. It was a little less, just about 89%. The numbers start going down dramatically, though. How many attend church? Mm, it's about two-thirds. <clears throat> how many read the Bible? Less than 50%. How many attend a small group? Mm, it's about 35%. How many do all four? Mm, it's about 25, one out of four. That's what we were indicating, yeah. A Bible Bible study or church small group is how we put it. No, no, no. Um, And the only point of this slide is to show you a biblical worldview, how you think, makes a difference. If you have those six things straight in your head, it will really impact how how you engage your faith. Proverbs twenty three: For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. How you think makes a difference. And that's what probe has been about for our entire existence. How do we think as Christians? How, is the, how does the Bible impact every aspect of our life? How we think matters. It really does matter. So, 33 million born-again 18 to 40-year-olds. Only 10 million or 11 million have a biblical worldview. When we add questions about, is Jesus the only way? Do you share your truth? Do you have an obligation to share your truth with others? Do you attend church? That number drops to 6.3 million. When you add questions about attending a Bible study or a small group, and are, are the Bible and science essentially consistent with each other? We just use the word consist, essentially consistent. Well, the number drops by two-thirds again, down to 2.3 million. When you add in that the Bible actually informs your decisions and you have no ma- you're not struggling with any major sexual sins. And that means practicing them. <laughs> okay, you're engaged in them, okay? Well, that number not, drop, drops again to 1.2 million. That's about 4% of our born again population. Now, you, remember I said we had 6 out of those 817 that said they witnessed to somebody in a typical month. Well, there's, there's this number. That's 0.75% okay, of these born-again adults. But those six who said they witnessed are not in, are not in this group. So you wonder, okay, what, what is it you're witnessing about? What, what are you telling people? What, what do you say is true? I mean, how do you... That's even scarier. They might be witnessing to somebody, but they don't have the real truth in their heads. So these are just some of the things that we recognize are needed, watermark, models, and, and makes all of these things available. That's one of the reasons soon I just love being here. Um, they provide bridges to people. They provide avenues to, to connect. Uh, they offer healing. There's a forgiveness here. There are people available to mentor you. There's instruction today. There are great models walking around this, this campus, and hundreds, thousands of them, actually. And if there needs to be a change of heart and mind, although Probe has always been focused on how you think, 
where your heart is, those two need to be connected. And for many of us uh, young adults today, they're disconnected. As I said earlier, Christian Smith is saying they're, they're basically using their heart. They're using their feelings to make decisions with. Questions? Are you thoroughly depressed? <laughs> is, this, is, that, is this surprising to you? No. Could have guessed, huh? Yeah. Well, we're almost time. We've got time for a break. This is it, right? Now, this title might seem a little startling to you. Does the church think more like Darwin than like Jesus? Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend some time talking about evolutionary ideas so you can see the framework of how evolutionists think and therefore how they think about culture, how they think about people, how they think about human beings is all influenced by some of these key, uh, key statements that I'm going to come to. And I'm going to march through several areas of culture where I'm going to show you the influence that Darwinian thinking has in our in our, in our culture. Excuse me, our culture today, how we operate. Okay, um, and then once you're able to see that, I think you're going to start seeing already before I even get to the end where I talk about how it's an influence in the church directly. You begin to see, I, I see, I get it, I see what's going on here, I can see the pieces that are fitting together and how the church has really adopted evolutionary thinking. A couple of important principles here, how evolution works. An organism strives to survive and reproduce. That's it. In their minds, in evolutionist minds, we are just another biological organism, so our only purpose here is to survive and reproduce. It's what we do. Uh, the species persists through time, not individuals. You are just a, a temporary care, caretaker of genes. And genes are what get passed on in the next generation. The species c- continues. It's the DNA. It's the genes that are driving the whole process. Nature selects from various mutations. So... That nature isn't a force that's selecting. It's simply described, it's just a, wor- a phrase that describes what happens. Okay? Darwin spoke of a struggle for existence. Uh, Hitler's Mein Kampf. That's my struggle. He consistently used that phrase, struggle for existence, in, in talking about his ideas. We'll get to that later. Um, they believe that human social systems have evolved. This is really reductionism, but when you ask them, why do we love our children? They tell you, well, it's an effective means of producing effective reproducers. It works. What has become a part of our makeup, a part of our societies, how we live, how we breathe, is there simply because it's aided survival and it's aided reproduction. Yes, everything boils down to that. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, you can ask, what's the point? <laughs> um, there's really a very utilitarian cost-benefit context the way how they decide everything and how they look at everything. Uh, I was at North Texas. We, I was in the Department there of Ecology and Evolution. 
Uh, my professor was the evolution prof professor there at UNT. He just recently retired last year. Um, and we had a seminar class uh, for all the grad students in the department, about 15 or so, and there were five professors in the department. And we were talking about a book by Edward Wilson called Human Nature, where he was describing our human nature strictly from an evolutionary standpoint. And, of course, this came up, the purpose of life. He talks about it directly, survive, reproduce. That's all we're here for. So I asked, I posed a question. So, well, let me get this straight. You're telling me that the only purpose in life is to survive and reproduce. Everybody else is agreeing with that. So, okay, well, let me, let me offer a hypothetical scenario here. Let's say I'm dead. I'm in the ground. No afterlife. There's no spiritual stuff, no spiritual realm. The decomposers are doing their thing. What difference does it make to me now whether I reproduced or not? Kind of a long silence. <laughs> Finally, one of the professors speaks up and he says, well, I guess ultimately it doesn't really matter. Hmm. Well, you just got through telling me the only purpose in life is to survive and reproduce, and now you tell me ultimately that doesn't matter either. So why go on living? Why stop at red lights? Who cares? Another long silence. <laughs> the same, the same professor. And he must have been thinking, okay, I got us into this little jam here. So, again, to show you how firmly entrenched this thinking is in their minds, his answer will astound you in many ways. But it's totally consistent with an evolutionary viewpoint. He said, well, I guess in the future, those that will be selected for, meaning those who will continue to survive and reproduce, those who will be selected for will be those who know there is no purpose in life, but they will live as if there is. They will be the best, in other words, in living a lie. You can't live according to evolutionary well, it's it's just they're working for the benefit of science. Why? <laughs> they just say I like it. Because driven to the natural extreme, I mean, literally, if your purpose is to survive and reproduce, then if I'm living in a in a society or a situation that um, is putting my life in danger, and, and you know, so I'm stranded on a desert island, and I need to slaughter my children to have something to eat, so I can continue to reproduce more children with mm -hmm. my wife. I mean, I know that's just a, a horrible example, but I mean that's <coughs> the natural progression where that whole argument is. Everybody's going to need to. If you're going to survive, you need income. So I'm genetically inclined to do science. So and I like it. So that's what I do to survive. And that same uh, means of providing my own survival. Uh, I like sex, you know, so I, I might have some kids. And that's really a good thing so that my genes carry on the next generation. Um, but the enjoyment of sex is something that has evolved because it helps promote reproduction, right? <laughs> so... <laughs> Again, I, I can I can do that really well for you, <laughs> analyzing things from that evolutionary perspective. Okay, so what I want to do now is begin looking at some other things. We'll look at Darwin himself here. Uh, many people uh, only know Darwin for his major book on the origin of species. 
Even most evolutionists haven't read the most influential book, however, in society. That is The Descent of Man. Um, Darwin was a strong abolitionist. He hated slavery. In fact, he even hated zoos because that was slavery of animals. He didn't like zoos either. Um, he helped, you know, Darwin was a strong abolitionist and helped establish that all races of man were from a common ancestor, he says. Okay? In his mind, that makes them all equal. We're all the same. We're all, we all come from a common ancestor. At the time, many believed that each of the races of man were especially created by God. So they weren't necessarily related. Now, that biblically doesn't work. work. <laughs> but even in the church, that was quite uh, prevalent, and that's what justified slavery. They were, special, they were created to be... This is, this, is, this is their purpose in life, <laughs> is, is to serve. Um, but that doesn't mean he believed all races to be equal, even though they had a common ancestor. Now, in his book, Descent of Man... He was talking about what I'm going to quote for here is, is a section where he's answering a question he's received many times. He says, I get asked, you know, here's humans and here's the ape species, but I don't see any gradations in between. So where'd those things go? Why is there a gap between humans and the apes? He basically uh, answers it, and it's the same answer they use today, that, that all those intermediate species have gone extinct. They were there but they've gone extinct. So it looks like there's a gap. Now he's speculating about what's going to happen to this gap between man and, and the apes. He says, in the future, the break will then be rendered wider because, well, what he says basically, uh, <laughs> preview that, he indicates that he's, he expects the, the gorillas and the chimpanzees to go extinct fairly soon in the next few centuries. And... Um, he also expects the what he calls the more civilized races. He uses civilized races and barbarian races, and he uses that kind of dichotomy. So that's what he's talking about. The apes will go extinct. And he said, then the break will be rendered, rendered wider, for it will intervene between man and a more civilized state, as we may hope than the Caucasian, meaning the Caucasian is the more civilized. In his, in his language, he's saying they are the most evolved. They are the higher race. And some ape as low as a baboon. Instead of as present, the gap of present is between a Negro or Australian and a gorilla. So he's already saying the Australian Aborigine, the African Negro, they are the closest ones to the apes. And, you know, there's the rest of us up there. So he clearly indicated by natural means, and he he insisted that natural selection was all there is. There's no, there's no, in, there's no design. There's no intent. There's no plan. There's no purpose. And this is just the way it worked out. So he's clearly setting up a situation where the races of man are not the same. They are not on an equal plane. Some are more highly evolved than others. One of his uh, followers, Ernst Haeckel, 1905, again, now starting to think Darwinianly, said hundreds and thousands of incurables. He was angry about this. Lunatics, lepers, people with cancer are artificially kept alive without the slightest profit to themselves or the general body, meaning the human species. He's complaining because we're wasting resources on individuals that are not going to help the species survive. This is really bad for our evolutionary future. 
In fact, there are many evolutionists today who, if you get them in the right moment, get them a beer or two, and get them talking about modern medicine, um, they're likely to say that modern medicine is is polluting the uh, the gene pool. Yeah, because we're keeping alive all those that usually would select against, and their genes are spreading in the population. Because we, we, there's too much artificiality to our environment today. Uh, Karl Marx was an early convert to Darwin. He sent uh, Darwin a copy of Das Kapital, and he, he wrote in it from a devoted admirer to Charles Darwin. Leon Trotsky, another communist, said, Darwin stood for me like a mighty doorkeeper at the entrance to the temple of the universe. Now, see, they're not just talking about biology anymore. They're talking how, how, how Darwin's idea influenced everything, everything we do. Uh, Frederick Nietzsche, of course, uh, for Nietzsche, Darwinism justified one race eliminating another for its own benefit. There's a, there's a class struggle is normal. <laughs> and who wins? The more highly evolved. Because, how, how do you know that? Well, because they won. <laughs> that, that's how you know. <clears throat> Nancy Piercy's Total Truth, Truth is a book I highly recommend. Um, just will give you a firm understanding of cultural captivity in our culture today. And chapter, chapter 8, she called Darwin's of the Mind. And I'm just going to kind of touch on this to help you see her analysis of how Darwinian thoughts and, and ideas have permeated almost every aspect of our society. And if Darwinism has permeated all aspects of our society, and we have millions of culturally captive Christians in our churches, they're being influenced by Darwinian thinking, and they're adopting it. Okay? She talks about sociology, psychology, and economics, political thought, moral theory, theology, law, literature, philosophy, medicine. Um, I'm only going to focus on the four that are highlighted in, in yellow. Okay? A couple of individuals who were turning points. Oliver Wendell Holmes uh, became a Darwinist uh, after the Civil War. He was a uh, student of theology. He was in a seminary uh, planning on being a pastor. Went to war, saw the horrors of war, and came across Darwin, and uh, that was true. What he did, what he thought before, he rejected. And he concluded that evolution applies not only to physical organisms, this is what I've been trying to point out, but also to the sphere of beliefs and convictions. We have to follow Darwinian principles because that's what's true. That don't just apply to biology, but apply it to everything. Uh, psychologist William James, uh, again, late 19th, early 20th century, decided ideas are imprinted like rewarding behaviors. If an idea pays off, we call it true. If an idea works, that's what's true. That's why it could be true today because it works today, and it might not work 10 years from now because it doesn't work. Well, then it's not true anymore. It's not true anymore. Um, the homegrown American philosophy of pragmatism, very significant, adopted the Darwinian conclusion that matter preceded mind, and therefore ideas, concepts, convictions develop as tools for survival. That's what they are. They're tools. There's not some uh, standard sitting out there that we're always trying to achieve. It, it's tools. They're just tools of survival. Truth is relative to your particular environment. 
A couple of other examples here. John Dewey, actually the founder of our modern educational system, unfortunately, <laughs> wrote that Darwinism gives us new logic to apply to mind, morals, and life. An idea is good if it does the job. Again, the idea is true if it does the job. Everything's becoming results-oriented. The more you focus on the results, how you get there doesn't matter as much. That's just what Sue is pointing out. If you're focused on the end, if the end justifies the means, that's Darwinian thinking is what we're seeing here. Richard Dawkins, a contemporary uh, Darwinist and atheist, um, said quite plainly, Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. Prior to Darwin, you didn't. You, the thing that stuck in the craw of saying there is no God was nature, was creation. Darwin provided a nat- naturalistic means to accomplish that. Other, there were ideas before, but nobody had a mechanism. Darwin proposed a mechanism. Now, we're looking at a couple things. Where did activist judges come from? What's their justification? Our educational system today, constructivist education, the ph- philosophical trends of postmodernism, and we'll talk a little about theology and process theology. Oliver Wendell Holmes again. He treated law as a product of evolving cultures and traditions. He unabashedly agreed that judges do not interpret law, but they make law. The struggle today that we have between judicial conservatives who who view the Constitution as a document that we're to conform to, and then you have the judges who really do believe the Constitution needs to continually be updated and changed and altered to match how society is functioning today. Those are what we're terming activist judges. They are truly making law, and Roe versus Wade, the abortion decision, is universally recognized as legislation from the bench. They made law. They didn't interpret law with Roe versus Wade. Everybody gets that. And Wendell Holmes was the one who really got this started. He's looked upon as a uh, a legal scholar and a, a pillar. He was on the U.S. Supreme Court uh, as a pillar of judicial uh, uh, right and wrong, in a sense. And he was high, he's highly respected. But where his ideas came from and what he was trying to instill was clearly evolutionary. Education. Again, John Dewey saw intellectual inquiry as a form of mental evolution. The whole idea of values clarification is based on the idea that our our beliefs. Our mental processes evolve through your lifetime. So you're constantly having to go through a process of of clarifying what your values are now. Because they're they're just going to change because your mind evolves. He says, none of us can be certain our values are right for other people. He's worth writing and saying these things in the 1930s. (laughs) And you see it in our culture everywhere, don't you? It's permeated, and it's based on an evolutionary view of society. Dewey said the goal of education should be to teach students how to construct their own knowledge. Even even one of our, our states, one of their standards of education for high school kids is that, and I, Nancy doesn't say which state. She uh, references it, but she doesn't mention the actual state. Um, just points to an article. Um, one of the goals, one of the standards for the, the for one of these state for one of our states is that each high, high school graduating senior ch- should have 
should have the ability to reconstruct history on their own. That's a value. Well, because you can't trust history because it's coming from somebody whose mind is evolving and we can't know what real state their evolved mind was at when they were writing this stuff. And so you can never really know whether the history you're reading is actually representing what happened because who can ever really know what actually happened? That's where, our, that's where our history departments are today. They claim you can't know history. It's a job that helps them survive and reproduce. <laughs> that's about the best you can do. <laughs> Again, constructivism, and this is, this is how all educational departments and sector universities operate. They're all teaching constructivist education. Even some of our Christian colleges are teaching this. Constructivism does not assume the presence of an outside objective reality that's revealed to the learner, but, but rather that, that learners actively construct their own reality. This is what our kids are being taught. In one state, uh, here, the one state history standards say that my high school sh students should have a strong sense of how to reconstruct history. Um, philosophy. Doesn't he look like a friendly guy? Richard Wardy. <laughs> yeah, he's he's uh, he's current. Okay, University of Virginia. Stated very plainly, truth is made, not found. And he calls it keeping faith with Darwin. Keeping faith with Darwin means that all our beliefs and convictions arise by random variations in the brain, <laughs> just like Darwin's random variations in nature. So all those professors out there are simply teaching from random variations in their brain. But it's a job. <laughs> yeah. But he's sure that his perspective yes. is correct. Yes. Yeah. 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 That that that's a matter of definition whether somebody's a lunatic or not. Uh, in his mind, truth is simply what helps you get ahead in the struggle for existence. That's all it is. And again, it's going to change. Uh, he's currently at the University of Virginia. And he even admits that uh, there's really nothing left to do. There's nothing left to do. Um, if you take this kind of postmodern perspective, and this is this is this is the real philosophical underpinning of postmodernism, it's where philosophy had to go in a naturalistic system, because there is no immaterial mind in here. There's just a package of meat that we call a brain, and your thoughts and ideas and beliefs are simply the electrical interactions between cells in your brain. And that's what he's saying, that those are, there's nothing guiding those. So this is really self-contradictory, ultimately, because you're, the only absolute truth now is that there is no absolute truth. But that's an absolute statement. When he says truth is made, not found, that's an absolute. But we can't know truth, so that can't be true. Right? Most people will not really think about it that way. They will see the advantages 
for their own life of living that way, which means I don't have to be in conflict with anyone who believes differently than me. We can all just get along, except for those narrow-minded, self-righteous, bigoted Christians who still think they're right and we're wrong. That's why we're the bad guys in the culture today. That's it. And it's all based, ultimately, on a Darwinian way of thinking. Process theology. Anybody heard the term? (laughs) Process theologians teach that God and the world are both in a process of constant change and evolution. So you, you see this is coming from a Darwinian foundation. God evolves over the course of history, and he is changed, he or she is changed by our choices and our decisions. We affect God. God is neither omniscient nor omnipotent. I don't even, why even bother studying about him then, you know, especially since we can't know it's true anyway. <laughs> some evangelicals even borrow some of these same ideas in what is known as open theism, that God is limited, Okay. But again, all these ideas spring from a Darwinian worldview. See how, how this is all, how Darwinism is weaving its way into everything? Mm-hmm. Oh, this guy's got a mustache too. Now we're going to get closer to the church. We're talking about philanthropy. Andrew Carnegie uh, drew a very clear distinction between those who were worthy of charity and those who were not. He modern philanthropy, at least secular philanthropy, is, oper, operates under this system. I will give my money to those organizations that I think will improve society, and there are some who might not. And you've got to work with the best people. There are some of those homeless who aren't going to go anywhere. Leave them alone. Find those who, who have some potential, and then we'll, we'll work with those. That's what he, again. It's a cost-benefit ratio. How much money is it going to cost for the ben, for the benefit society reaches? So you're saying that it's already there for many. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Philanthropy, particularly, that's a term he coined. Um, he called it scientific philanthropy. <laughs> now listen to this. Even fundraisers today in the church. This is where we're going to. Get stuck a little bit. Encourage methods that work. I'm so pleased and uh, honored that Watermark has not gone out and got a fundraising company. There's plenty of them that are Christian fundraisers for churches. I was a part of a church many years ago, and we were going to build a building. We hired one of these companies, and this is how they operate. They ask to see all your financials from the last several years, your, your record of donations, your record of expenditures, uh, the highs and lows. and you know They don't really see who the givers are necessarily, but they probably get the information as well, I imagine, because uh, that tells them who, who the major funders are. Um, and from all that, they apply their what they'll call best practices, in other words, the, the processes in a church that have raised money in the past. You've got small groups, you do different home meetings, you do this, you do all these different things. And then they tell you, okay, this is the amount you need, and that's going to be your goal. And they will sometimes tell you, if, you've, if your goal is too high, you, know, you can't raise that much money from this church. You can't. It's a process. It's a mechanism. They simply say, follow our directives, and you will reach 90% of what your goal is if you do it this way. You won't really reach the goal. 
but you'll reach 90% of it um, if you do these things. That is a Darwinian way of operating. You're simply using what, in the past history, you're using what has worked. This is effective. This is a best practice. Uh, now, you ought to be thinking about your own thinking process. <laughs> when I'm adopting a, a way of life, or, or I'm going even in my own business, uh, how I operate my home, be really careful. Am I simply doing this because I've shown in the past it works? Well, in some cases, there's nothing really wrong with that, but what is, what's guiding your thinking? What's, what's the bottom line here? What, um, Revolution and Generosity is a book that came out a couple years ago, uh, sponsored by the ECFA. It's an edited volume. And they say philanthropy tries to use money to make a prosperous society of the strong and able, while biblical stewardship advocates humans caring for one another as fellow creatures and servants of the God who provides everything we need. Those are very radically, radically different ideas about how to use money. Back to the um, fundraiser thing. Talk about um, the, the pushback that some of you guys had about the lack of God in the... <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the pastors at the church at the time uh, really didn't like the approach at all. And one of his criticisms was was uh, expressed through a question. He said, well, if you're telling us just follow these processes, we'll raise all this money, why bother praying about this? It doesn't look to me like we need God involved here. Uh, and there are a few who really didn't like that. And there were some arguments among the pastoral staff about that. Uh, minimizing it, over-spiritualizing, all kinds of stuff, you know, got thrown back and forth. But um, that's a sad commentary because you clearly (laughs) said it for me. I don't have to pray. Just follow the process. (laughs) Work the system. We've got a plan. Now we just got to work the plan and we'll we'll be all set. (laughs) Uh, Consumerism in our churches. For many of us in our churches today, we're there because that church, as we have said, many people said, that meets our needs. It's about me. It's about worship style. It's about preaching style. It's about social opportunities. It's about who's there for my age group. It's about it's about me. That's seen the billboards for the first Baptist church that say a church you can believe in. Yeah. It's like okay. I believe in church. I believe in God. <laughs> like, every time I drive by there, I'm really tempted to write a letter to that pastor and say, what's more important in your belief system? Mm-hmm. I, just, I see that billboard, and I'm just shocked. Yeah. And I think part of what's going on there, and I'm glad you brought that up, is that um, churches will hire PR firms Mm-hmm. who are thinking through, okay, what will work to mm-hmm. sell this product? And mm-hmm. the product is church business. You know, and so they're not thinking in terms of how do we open ourselves up to the Spirit of God <laughs> so that he can, you know, sell more into the, the lives of people. So there's a Darwinistic theory of operating behind public relations principles as well. You know, because my guess is the billboard didn't come out of, of a pastoral meeting. My <laughs> guess is they hired somebody to come up with a campaign for mm-hmm. us, you know, and 
there's nothing intrinsically wrong with campaigns unless you leave God out of the picture, <laughs> which it's very easy to do because a lot of PR firms aren't necessarily Christians. They just they know what works. Yeah, we, we've studied human nature now to, to such a degree, especially advertising folks and all those kinds of things, that they, they know what human beings respond to and what they don't. It's a purely materialistic concept. I mean, just to play um, Yeah. Um, I, I think it's a slippery slope if you, you know, if you say, okay, God's just going to provide and that means I don't oh, have yeah. anything. Right, right. So I, I just I just think it's a little bit of a, uh, you can get yourself in a position to say, okay, and I've seen that before. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm just going to not do anything. And oh, yeah, I wouldn't advocate that. Yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't advocate not doing anything. It's a deeper slipper than you think. Do we really need to spend $25 million for a building? When Paul, when Paul and the apostles, you know, they got past a certain size, they just split, made up a new pastor, and started a new church. Yeah. yeah. you have to have mega churches only? I think it's just... The, the full end of thinking, I think, is that God works through a process. That if mm-hmm. it's everywhere else, that's what God wants us to do right. as well. But I think God's response is going to be different for every church in every situation. So yeah. They did it, very well that the pastoral staff had a, a meeting and prayed about what to do and led them to a marketing firm, which mm-hmm. I promise you, First Baptist Church hired a <laughs> Christian marketing firm. Many of the people in that marketing firm may or may not be evangelical Christians mm-hmm. that scored well on your survey. And if the purpose of spending money on an advertising campaign is to put butts in seats mm-hmm. for the ultimate purpose of introducing those people to Christ so that I really don't care what the book says. <laughs> and I do agree that it is somewhat offensive from our view. The whole purpose But if they can get them in the seats and introduce them to the proper world, mm-hmm. the Christian view, mm-hmm. Then the PR campaign did their job, and that was a very effective method. Mm-hmm. We have a very healthy s- dose of skepticism because we don't do it that way. Yeah, yeah. But it does work, and it is a process, mm-hmm. and there mm-hmm. is a business to do it. Ninety percent of church fundraising efforts fail. Yeah, church debt is junk. Right, mm-hmm. more church debt defaults than almost any other time. And it's not because there weren't people sitting around praying about it. Okay. Yeah. So I think that that's that their too far. Was can we not assume that their purpose was you can't people don't feel they can trust churches therefore trust right. yeah. yeah not that yeah. uh, clear that they, that they took God out of that statement but that their intent was mm-hmm. you can trust us as a church though if the PR firm doesn't realize then maybe it turn to where it appears to be an entity as that billboard isn't advertising to born uh, again Christians it's not for us mm-hmm it's, it's to get non-believers to go somewhere that they can, and then once you get in the door, you can, you know, do a bait switch. I mean, there's all kinds of <laughs> processes. <laughs> that you can do. Right. So, I think one of the biggest issues today is trusting in churches. I mean, I've been of larger evangelical churches in my youth, which absolutely burnt me and sent me away for mm. years. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. the seven and eight hundred dollar dresses and the little six year old who finally came out of the closet later and all this stuff. Uh, and society's having a hard time with that. So I think potentially that's what I read into what that says. Mm-hmm. You know, there is a value in knowing what seems to be what what way we, way we would put it is 
What is God blessing? I mean, that's the Henry Blackaby thing. Find out where God's active where God, and go join it. Okay? Um, but I talked with Blake several times uh, a year, and uh, one of the first meetings we ever had, he admitted to me that churches around the country are constantly calling water watermark and simply, got, simply asking, what are you guys doing now? Well, they're really looking for what's working. I mean, you, you can put the label of... It's tinted with it, let me just say. Okay, There is a sense in which you, you, you do want to look for what, what, where God is active. What is God doing? What does God seem to be blessing? I mean, you can put it under that umbrella that, uh, I don't know, Christianizes it. But... It's hard to get at what's underlying that, that the language, okay? Is it really just looking for, these guys are successful, their church is growing, uh, let's find out what they're doing and we'll copy it. It just seems so much of the assumption is more people equals God's yeah. blessings. So yeah. you have more warm bodies in the seats than, oh, God is blessing you. But I think if a church has 20 <clears throat> members, but, you know, 50 years from now, one of those numbers grows up to be the next Billy Graham and saves 10,000 mm-hmm. people. God blessed that church, even though there were only 20 people there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, God blessed Daniel by throwing him in a lion's den. Can <laughs> <laughs> you talk about any other example? Yeah. Example? yeah. Go on. Think about when you get a group of people together for prayer. I've, I've been paying a lot more attention to this in these last few years, and certain kinds of prayer requests dominate. Um, somebody's sick, an aunt, father, mother, daughter, somebody's not feeling well, they need prayer, uh, somebody lost a job, uh, somebody needs to sell their house. Uh, it's, it's almost all in the realm of the material. And that what that demonstrates is that that's where my concerns are. Yes, I'm praying to God. I'm recognizing He's there, but I'm looking for His influence in the physical. Where, how frequently you've ever heard, heard somebody simply say, "You know, I got to tell you, um, I'm really struggling with with God about." how he's directing my life I'm not happy uh, I, I don't get it I think I'm being I'm getting whiplashed uh, with problems and issues and I'm angry at God never heard that prayer request <laughs> how many times compared to so and so is sick so and so has got cancer so and so is in the hospital you know that's that dominates our prayer requests we don't we don't think so much about our spiritual lives because, because honestly, I think we, what we want everybody to think is that our spiritual life has become very privatized. It's me. And again, it's all about me in that, in that respect. And we're hesitant to throw those kinds of issues and problems that, that are spiritual out there because then we're, what we're worried about is that people will think I'm backsliding, uh, I'm not a good believer, uh, they won't want to hang out with me, I might lose some friends. And, you know. So we pray about our illnesses and our money problems and <laughs> all the material things. Um, walk in a Christian bookstore. When you look at spiritual life, it's, it's okay, 
it's God help, <laughs> but they're more tuned in how they're, they're, the goal is for you to live a more fulfilled, godly life. You. <laughs> you live a more fulfilled, godly life. I'm going to help you get your life in order. That's really what most of it's about. This is all Darwinian pragmatism. It's what it is. Um, not that there isn't value to, to almost all of those books, but again, the underlying unconscious guiding principle is this works. This worked for me, it'll work for you. So many devotional books that are out there today. Uh, people, well, I, this one, I really like this one. This one really works for me. Maybe it'll work for you. Maybe you, maybe. <laughs> we don't use that phraseology, but that's sort of what we mean. Um, youth programs. I think it's the toughest job in the church. The, the media technology is bombarding youth every second. <laughs> As Sue said, uh, you know, recently, in a, we, we, we live our lives according to what's on our screens. We're always looking at screens, <laughs> one kind or another. <laughs> screens are everywhere. That's what organizes our life today. But questions about faith begin in junior high. There was a study done a couple of years, just a few years ago. The book was called Already Gone, and they were doing surveys of about 2,020-somethings who had left the church. They've already left. In other words, they're already gone. And what that study showed is that, yeah, they broke away from the church physically once they left high school. But in their minds, they were already gone in junior high and high school. But they're living essentially a dual life. Uh, I know how to act at home. I know how to act at church or in my Christian school. But get me out of those environments, then I get to be me. (laughs) I get to be who I really am. Uh, A youth pastor usually is judged by what? Whether the group is growing. It's not the way it works here. But attendance at events, number of decisions... But what happens to those decisions? Jesus didn't give us the great commission to bring about decisions. He said, make disciples. And all too often, we've become, become very focused on how what environment we need to cause people to make a decision for Christ. And that's really where our, our focus is. That's where most of the church's attention is. Um, And that's, again, a bit of Darwinian thinking. We're focused on the results. We're not focused on the process. We we don't care how it gets done, just as long as we get decisions in the door. Um, There's lots of folks out there who who believe that the questions non-believers ask are just smoke screens to get you away. So you don't need to know answers to questions. You don't need to interact with them with their mind. You just get them to pray the prayer. (laughs) That's that's the goal. Again, there's there's a bit of Darwinian thinking to that. Um, and again, how do you really measure spiritual growth? I think Watermark, far and away, any church I've ever been associated, that's what they're concerned about. Yeah, decisions will come. But the people in the church need to grow. And every aspect of this church is enabling those who really, really want that to, to grow. Decision. If you are growing as a spiritual believer and you're maturing, 
then the people you meet outside, you will have, you will develop a desire to share your faith with others. It will be a natural result of being a mature believer. And that's the whole thing of accountability and the small groups. You're, 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 you constantly get challenged in one way or another. First of all, by people who know you. And so getting challenged by somebody you don't know, yeah, I've been down this road a few times before. I, I, I can do this. God can do this. I, I've seen God work. Um, so it's kind of, again, the word I use is insidious. It's, it's really down deep. And for most people, we don't really see it. Um, and this is a huge form of cultural captivity, again, that we don't even see, we don't even understand. Just a few more things. Lovely Daniel Dennett. Scares me to death just looking at the guy. Uh, his, his book in 1995 was called Darwin's Dangerous Idea. And there was no discussion of biology here. It was all about how Darwin, Darwinism has affected society. He said, there is no denying at this point that Darwin's idea is a universal solvent capable of cutting right to the heart of everything in sight. And he means everything. As an idea, uh, for instance, religion. What's religion? Well, religion is simply an evolved behavior that in the past, at least, aided survival and reproduction. It's a survival mechanism. All our behaviors are simple survival mechanisms that have come into human society because it worked. It aided survival. And so that, that's why this idea then gets applied to everything. If that is what's tr- true and we're just another biological organism, then everything needs to be considered in a Darwinian perspective. What I want to play for you here is a short clip from the movie Expelled, and it just talks about um, the overall effect that Darwinism has on the way, way people act and think. The materialist worldview of the 20th century took their justification, I think, in an important respect from the evolutionary world, that if we are creatures of matter, maybe we should take history into our own hands and engineer human culture, engineer it in the way that we engineer the machine. Uh, well, I would never want to indict scientific theory for the way that someone needs to use it. I think that Views of human nature that lower our estimation of what we have consequences for how people feel. In, in Darwinism, there's a denial of any intrinsic dignity for human persons. Uh, we are the result of undirected natural processes that did not have us in mind. We're the result of a purposeless material process. There is no, uh, we're not intended, there's no meaning to human life. Uh, when we die, we rot. So, one of the first things that goes with out the window with Darwinism is the idea of intrinsic dignity in, in persons. And, and with that, and that opens the door to all manner of, of ideologies that are predicated on the idea that uh, essentially meaning is whatever we, we create and justice blows out of the barrel of the gun. First of all, if you take seriously that evolution has to do with you know, the transition of life forms and that life and death are just natural processes, then one gets to be liberal about abortion and all of those kinds of ideas uh, seem to me follow very naturally from a Darwinian perspective. 
a deprivileging of human beings, basically. Uh, and I think that people who want to endorse a, a Darwinism have to sort of take this kind of viewpoint very seriously. Physicians who are aware of the history of 20th century American medicine harbor some um, uh, some bad feelings for Darwinists because of eugenics. Uh, and, and eugenics was a, an, an attempt to breed human beings. It was uh, the darkest chapter of American medicine. 50,000 people involuntarily sterilized. two great materialist ideologies of the, uh, the uh, 20th century, uh, the National Socialist ideology and the Marxist Socialist ideology, uh, cited or drew on Darwinism as, a, as an intellectual taproot. Do you think there could have been, could, could there have been Nazism and the idea that one racial group was dramatically superior to another without Darwinism? It's hard to say, but I think it would have been much more difficult because, of course, Hitler did specifically justify his ideas by reference to a Darwinian rationale. It had very, very decorative effects, degrading effects on our culture and on our capacity of our people to view themselves as spiritual beings with a will, with the capacity to do right and wrong, with a capacity to make meaningful choices in a broad human cultural context. All of that gets undermined and demeaned when we say that electrical activity going on inside your cranium is the only causative factor in everything that happens in the What's going to happen if it doesn't change? Well, I think we're watching we're watching what happens in a culture where people no longer believe that the truth matters. People no longer believe that self-command and self-discipline are for any other function other than to make money. When, when people start to believe that there's no greater good to live up to, what do you get? You get a coarse, vile, animal-like culture that every honest person finds unsavory. One of the last quotes from Nancy Percy in her book, Total Truth, she says, to be loyal to the great claims of faith, we can no longer acquiesce and letting Christianity be shunted aside to the value sphere. We must throw off metaphysical timidity. Big phrase. <laughs> be convinced that we have a winning case and take the offensive. Armed with prayer, spiritual power, not just process, mechanism. We need to ask God to show us where the battle is being fought today and enlist under the lordship and leadership of Christ. I believe here at Watermark that's what we're doing. We really are doing that here. Um, I'm not convinced many other churches, though, see it that way. Thoughts, comments? Time for a break, but questions? All right, you understood everything I said, and you're fully convinced. Okay. <laughs> All right, we'll take a break. Ten minutes. Uh, 10.40?
So, it's a DVD. You can, yeah, it, it came out in theaters. Yeah, there you go. Good film. They lost money though. Well, it's from it's. No. Well, several of the people in the film are believers. Uh, mostly from the intelligent design movement, but not everybody. For instance, uh, the guy interviewing, Ben Stein, he's, he's Jewish. Um, but they sh- all share the pers- perspective. What the film is about are individuals who have been expelled from the academy for holding intelligent view- views of intelligent design. And the uh, clear persecution they experienced in, in the process. And the other thing he admitted in there was in, 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 in making that suggestion that perhaps life was seated here by aliens. And I think Stein asked him something to the effect, well, could we tell? Do you think if if there was designed that the alien... Yeah, we probably could. And I thought, you just gave all legitimacy to intelligent design. Right there. Well, that's the funny thing. If design is there, we can detect it. He's hardcore enough. He's like, you know, well, he's leaning toward intelligent design. You know, he's Mm -hmm. advocating it without even knowing. Yeah. Because, I mean, I think he's starting to see the limitations of, you know, kind of chance, you know. I mean... Well, the reality is, is that... Cell biology, molecular biology, bacteriology, all of the, the um, sciences that are looking at how the cell works, they use design language all the time. They call protein complexes molecular machines. They talk about systems biology now. Where do systems come from? They don't evolve. They come from a mind. They come, you know, and um, they they really cannot do their work. They can't, they all use the language of design, plain and simple. Very ironic, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But they're they're just the words that work. They don't they don't mean that we use them because they work. <laughs> yep. Uh, so all this talk about you know evolution kind of for our survival and reproduction. Um, I have a brother who's very strong atheist. He mm. loves Nietzsche and mm. So essentially, would it be fair to say his whole system of beliefs is pretty much saying there's his own system of beliefs is saying there's something wrong? With it. Yeah, yeah. And 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 if he's that that far down the road, especially with Nietzsche. Mm-hmm. Um, well, but you know that's just random variations in our brains. Our brains work differently than his, and so what? Why do you even care? Why do you get mad about that? Because who really can control what they think? If you if you've adopted that fully naturalistic system, the, there's no reason to engage in a discussion. My mind just works differently than yours. So what? 
<laughs> it has to be. It's just me. Yes. Feelings. Yeah. That's the that's the only thing you're left with. You hate the idea of sin, yeah. <laughs> well, again, you know, a, a simple question could just be, why do you care? It's just random motions in your brain, and my brain works different than your brain, and you can't stop it. You can't re-educate me. So what? We're different. Hi, Ray Bowler. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to rearrange the random variations in the brains. <laughs> We're taking a little break. I'm trying to uh, mold some intelligent design to, to how your brains are working, <laughs> rather than just following the randomized script that. I just thought, oh, this is going to be. How to live a very Christian life in a non-Christian world? Philosophy, theistic, central. I'm like, wow. Okay, there's a lot of content here. I'm not messing around, man. I've heard of many seminaries, though. I didn't know that you were the president of Pro Ministries either. Been on your website for apologetics. Oh, good. Good. A lot of good resources. Probably the best resource we've got there is Probe Answers. It's mail, where people, real people ask us real questions, and we, we publish our answers. And, uh, man, eight, over 800 of those are on the website. That's a, that's a commitment. <laughs> <laughs> that's the one I just, I just did. Blink. I actually referred to you in, in my, my presentation. Uh-oh. Conversation we had where you you admitted that many ch- churches are calling Watermark all the time, saying, "What are you guys doing?" Uh, and I put that in the framework of people wanting to wanting to know simply what works. Yes. Which can be. That's exactly right. A Darwinian motion, motive. <laughs> Without even knowing it. Well, Sue is doing the next presentation, so we ain't going to start till she gets back. Uh oh. Oh yeah. Uh huh. In mere Christianity, he draws parallels between becoming a Christian being the next step in evolution. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember that part. I've read the book a couple times, but uh, I don't remember that one. Hard to, without seeing it right in front of me, it's hard to know what he actually said, but. Um, he had his objections to evolution as simply a purely uh, materialistic process. Um, he would prefer to say God's guiding it and designing it along the way. Okay, so we believe it happened, but then God. Yeah, yeah. Did you talk to respect that? Just like the brand of the brand of the 
back in your blue cheeks and your ice cream. Oh yeah, huh? You, you can you can eat that. But, you can eat it. But you will not be satiated. No. You will never be healthy. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> now a chef who knows how foods need to go together and how they blend together well, in intelligent design, in a sense, would be able to tell you, this, that's not how that works. That's, that's a really bad idea. Um, uh, sometimes I've used the, the example of garlic ice cream. That the thought of it just kind of does this to you, you know. But in the realm of ideas, we're putting those kind of things together in our heads all the time. Great illustration, by the way. Good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Would that all <laughs> on your baked potato. Totally, you know, postmodern thinking is totally, you know, I'm going to take a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I don't have to worry about logical consistency as long as I can believe what I want to believe mm-hmm. and not have to feel guilty about it. Yeah. No. And people will leave me alone yeah. about what I believe. That's great. 